lot of great helpers, a lot of great food and everything. It was fantastic. Uh, just a touch tired, but uh, I think the Lord will provide me strength as I continue preaching here this morning. And I just want to welcome everybody here to Covenant Church. And let me just say, as a church, our goal here is to know Jesus and to make him known. And if you're a visitor, kind of like Sharon said, I'd invite you to fill out one of those brown connect cards in the back. We'd love to give you a a nice ceramic Covenant mug and uh, love to connect with you, buy you lunch or coffee or whatever. And I'm just really glad each and every one of you are here this morning. Well, my name is Ben Espinoza. I serve as a pastor here at Covenant Church. And and if you weren't here last week, we kicked off a new series in the book of Philippians called Joy and Chains. And and last week, just to recap, I I talked about how the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians, he he expresses this, this pure joy because the gospel is being spread all across the Roman Empire, despite the fact that Christians were put in jail and persecuted. And he talks about how as Christians, our hope and our joy should be in the gospel of Christ. And it's our responsibility as Christians, as people who love Jesus with all of our hearts, minds, and souls. It's our responsibility to share this good news with everybody that we know. And today I want to look at a passage of scripture that is among the most beautiful, the most well-known, and yet most challenging passages of scripture that many of us have ever encountered. And that passage is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But before we read that passage, I want to tell you a little bit about my own history, my own personal relationship with the passage. You see, when I was in college, I I was required to take a class on preaching. I remember the very first sermon I ever preached on uh, for that class. The the text was over this uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And I remember wrestling with what this text really meant for us today. And I remember how all the commentaries I read just focused on the theology of the text. You know, what it, what it had to say about God. And I took that thought and I said, you know, maybe this, this is one of those passages of scriptures that, scripture that, that we as Christians need to just know and understand and need, need to know uh, just to be good stewards of God's word. So I wrote the sermon with that idea in mind. This is a good theological text. I'm just going to preach the good theology of the text. And I did pretty well in the sermon. I think I got an A on it. But I remember sitting down to coffee with this professor who taught the class. And we started talking about everything, life, church, ministry, whatever. And then we got onto the, t- onto the topic of my sermon. I remember him saying in, uh, in his own distinctive voice, he said, You know, Ben, your exegesis, your interpretation of that passage was spot on. But you never answered the question of preaching. What does it mean to the people of God? And more specifically, what will it mean to the people that you're trying to shepherd? So I say this because I want to make the point that this passage has really tested and tried great men and women throughout history because of its theological significance. But what I want to do this morning is talk about what it really means to us today in our context. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'll be reading from the New International Version. The Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. 
And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, I ask that you'll illuminate this text, Lord. Bring it to life so that we can understand it. To understand the words that you want us to hear today and how we can put your word into action today in our context in Bowling Green, Ohio. Transform our hearts. Renew our minds, Lord. Transform our souls through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So let me just kind of set up the context here for this passage Paul has already expressed deep love and joy for the Philippian church and how he's excited about how the gospel is just making its way through the palace garden throughout the Roman Empire and and even how his enemies are preaching the good news of Jesus. And where chapter 1 kind of climaxes is in verses 27 through 28. And I'll just kind of read this for you just to kind of give a little bit of context to this passage that we're dealing with here. Paul says this in uh, uh, chapter 1 verses 27 through 28. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So, so Paul's concern in these verses is that the Philippians live in a manner that testifies of their transformation uh, through the gospel of Christ. They know the gospel. They preach the gospel, but Paul is encouraging them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And what exactly is this manner? What does it mean to be worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, in this set of verses, Paul clearly states that there are two characteristics that encompass gospel worthiness. Number one, it's standing firm in unity. And number two, it's actively advancing the gospel. And notice the kind of language that Paul uses here. These are not mutually exclusive functions, okay? Paul doesn't command them to stand firm in unity, and when you get the chance, you actively advance the gospel or whatever. He doesn't separate the two, but he combines them. His prayer is that the Philippians will stand on a united front over against the enemies who would seek to discredit the cause of Christ, against the people from the inside that are trying to tear down the body and ultimately advance the kingdom of God. For Paul, the combination of unity and mission was a given. And throughout the New Testament, this message of unity is just absolutely pervasive. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, let them be one as you and I, Jesus and the Father, are one. And Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, but all are one in Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul continually points to the unity that all believers have for one another. He says, for just as one, the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So this unity that we share in Christ 
is central to the message of Paul, it's central to the message of the Bible, and it's central to the message of the gospel. And when we think of church unity, you know, we often think of everybody just giving each other hugs and high fives and everyone's friends and everything's just great. And that's fantastic because, you know what, we're created in the image of God who's made up of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we fellowship together in community, when we're one, we're actively reflecting the Trinitarian God when we're united with our brothers and sisters in Christ. However, I think the Bible's call to Christian unity serves a bit more of a a functional or a pragmatic purpose in addition to the purposes I've already mentioned. If you go back to the Old Testament, God's purpose in setting up the nation of Israel was to be a means, a conduit, of spreading God's message of reconciliation to the entire world. God would choose Israel, the smallest of all nations, to be the conduit by which he was to bless the entire planet. However, as we know by reading the Old Testament, they failed in their mission miserably, and they continued to to turn to other gods and religions, even though his intent was to use Israel to be this carrier of his message of love to the entire planet. But through the death and resurrection of Christ, God is using the church, the new Israel, to spread the good news across the world. And this is why unity in the New Testament is so important. Because if we as Christians are called to be God's agents of transformation in this world that's characterized by brokenness, by death, by destruction, by demonic influences, we can't at all be divided. We must be one. So Paul's desire for the Philippians is to remain a united front, even in the midst of all the persecution and antagonism that the church had encountered. It is within this this context of the need for unity-powered mission that Paul writes his exhortation in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And he writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement for being united with Christ, make my joy complete. Remember, the theme of the book of Philippians is joy, so remember that. Have that same love. Be of one spirit, one mind. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, value others above yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests. Look out for the interests of others. And really, kind of a better way to phrase this passage is, since there is encouragement in Christ, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So basically, since since you've experienced Christ's redemptive love, since you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit, And since you're a participant in the work of Christ, put aside your petty arguments and selfish ambitions and agendas for the sake of this shared unity. It's as simple as that, as Paul writes. And this sense of laying down your agenda or ambition is what Paul is getting at here. In order to be of one mind and one spirit and one vision, our own agendas and our own ambitions need to be put aside. But I think the implications are are more important than just don't be ambitious or selfish. Okay, one of the most common film plots, it's in all the great movies out there, is when a team has to come together and accomplish a mission that none of them could complete just by themselves. And as this plot moves along, there's this in-house tension that goes on between members of this team, and they can't agree on anything until something really, really bad happens, or somebody changes their mind, and then they can finally move forward and have their final victory. And this is, this is one of the greatest film plots of all time. And you see it in Star Wars, Star Trek, The Avengers, Ocean's Eleven. I don't, I don't care. It's in a bunch of great movies. But the magic moment 
is when all those characters in the story come together around a common vision and have the same mind. Whether it's to save the universe from destruction or rob a Las Vegas casino, which I do not condone, by the way. And what Paul says is that as Christians, we have to have that same mind as well. But what kind of mind is Paul talking about here? Well, he says that directly in verses 5 through 9, he says, Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He was in the form of God. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, took upon the form of a servant, being found in human form. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And God has exalted him above everything else in the universe. And now many scholars continue to wrestle with the true meaning of this text. Uh, Most likely, this was an ancient Christian hymn used to describe the whole story of Jesus, his status with God in heaven, his descent into humanity and unto death, and his final victory over all creation, over all of his enemies. And this passage is traditionally called the kenosis passage because of the word that, that Paul uses to describe Christ's act of self-emptying, his incarnation. And the thing that scholars really try to nitpick and go back and forth about is just how much self-emptying Jesus did. And this is definitely a great question to ask, but I don't think Paul's, Paul intended for us to craft some sort of deep theology out of this verse. Sure, it's all there, and we can discuss it and everything. But I think his intention is a little more pastoral or pragmatic than that. Paul exhorts the Philippians to be more humble, to esteem others as better than themselves. And this is the example that we find in Jesus Christ. He could have existed peaceably with the Father and with the Holy Spirit in the heavenly realm. But he chooses to come down here, live among the people, point the way to redemption, and provide the ultimate means of reconciliation for all of us. And it's this kind of self-emptying humility that Paul is trying to get the Philippians to inhabit, to serve one another and put others above ourselves. You know, and, and also notice how in this passage, Paul describes how Christ disrobes out of his clothes of godhood and puts on a suit of flesh Or as Brother Ken mentioned about a month ago, a meat suit, which is a funny way to describe it. That's how all the theologians describe it, by the way. I'm just kidding. And Christ chooses to live his life among the people. And we see this all throughout the Gospels. Jesus hanging out with tax collectors, with with sinners, with, with prostitutes, with humble fishermen. And he readily engages religious and political leaders. He lived among us. He walked among us. And I think this idea of being incarnational, of of taking off our own comfortable clothes and putting on another set of clothes in order to reach and minister to different people. It's just one of those other things that Paul is trying to get the Philippians to see through the example of Christ. And notice how in this passage, in this canonic hymn, as the scholars call it, Paul tells the entire gospel message. Christ, who is God, came down, lived among us, and died. And as a result, God has exalted him. He has conquered all of his enemies, and he reigns over the entire universe. That's the gospel right there. And the mind that the Philippians, that Paul wants the Philippians to share, is a mind centered on living out the gospel of Christ. If we don't first and foremost come together around the gospel and seek to live it out in our daily lives, then we're totally mistaken. Any effort that we make as a church must be centered on living the gospel. If it isn't, 
then we're putting our hope in things that either don't matter or absolutely unimportant from an eternal perspective. Now, if we're a community truly unified around the gospel, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're empowered to reach out to our local communities and sharing the message of God's love through Christ. So it's this gospel-centered unity that leads us to practice powerful mission through building relationships with coworkers and neighbors and family members, doing life with them, serving them, and being that salt and light that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5. So to recap, Paul is eminently concerned that the Philippians stand of one mind, one heart, one vision, putting all of their own personal agendas aside that aren't the advancement of the gospel and uniting around the gospel in an effort to carry out the mission that God has for us, to make disciples of all nations. To boil it down very, very simply, the main goal of unity is to better accomplish our mission. Now, what does this mean for us at Covenant Church right now? Well, I think it boils down to just two very, very simple main points. I think, number one, it means that we unite around our vision as a church. Plain and simple, here's our vision as a church right here. To know Jesus and make him known. All right? We want to know this Jesus who came down from earth, died, rose again, and is now at the right hand of God the Father. And we want to make him known, which is our responsibility as Christians, as it says in the last chapter of Matthew. If you read through the New Testament, that's kind of the uh, the, the pattern that you get. You read through the Gospels, you know this Jesus guy, you see what he's done for you, what he's all about. And then you go to the book of Acts, a book wholly focused on making making Jesus known all across the world. And what we want to do as a church is to know Jesus through his word, through prayer, through spiritual disciplines. And we want to make him known through sharing the gospel, through social action too, and through actively engaging our culture with the heart and mind of Christ. Now when we come together and rally around this vision for our church and and just tie our lives into what God is doing through the church, we realize that our lives are just intimately woven together, connected to the story of God that he's telling in the world through the church universal. And as I mentioned before, God prizes our unity among believers above so many different things that could divide us. Why is that? Because our unity is what testifies to the true transformative power of the gospel. As humans, it's ingrained in our DNA to divide and and find a reason to separate from others. But the gospel calls us to a higher ethic where we put our own agendas aside in the pursuit of one clear agenda of knowing Jesus and making him known in the world. And that's the testimony of the entire New Testament. Now, I want for us as as a church to have this mission ingrained into our hearts and into our minds and find ways in our own lives that we know Jesus and make him known. And the thing about the body of Christ that's so fascinating is that God has gifted each and every one of us each and every individual, these, these skills, these gifts that we can help the church flourish in her mission. And being of the same mind, it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that we, we look the same, we think the same, we act the same, we talk the same. But it does mean our hearts and our minds are set on the same thing, which should always be the good news, the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
Great things happen when people unite around a common vision. And, and a common vision like the one we have for our church to know Jesus and make him known is probably one of the greatest visions that anyone could ever have this side of heaven because it points directly to heaven. And number two, uh, another way that we can just exemplify and, and live out this passage is serving selflessly and living selflessly in the church and in the local community as well. I think for the most part, this piece goes without saying. Of course, we need to serve selflessly in our church and in the local community. However, to put our personal interests and agendas aside and seek or to exalt or better the life of another human being is often where the challenge lies. And we're all guilty of it, all right? We will serve if it's convenient for us, if it fits into our schedules. And believe me, my schedule is usually so packed, so I understand this concern. But to say to ourselves that our personal wants, our personal needs, preferences may not be the priority of our lives is a challenge for everyone to admit and practice. And that's what Paul calls the Philippians to do, to forget your own personal interests and agendas and serve other people, to empty ourselves of our entitlement and our privilege and seek the good of others. Jesus says that the world will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. And it says in 1 John, the Apostle John, he, he's kind of radical and he goes one step further. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no compassion on them, how can the love of God be in that person? And in the same way, if we see others in any kind of need or of assistance and refuse to help, we're disobeying the law of God's love. And that sounds pretty harsh, but that's what the Bible says. And this is probably the most crucial way that we make Jesus known in our community when we esteem others as better than ourselves. And this is probably one of the greatest forms of, of apologetics, of, of defending our faith that we have in the church today. That we as a body are continually emptying ourselves in hopes that we can seek to exalt and better the lives of other people. And to kind of close out, I want to show you an image right here. You've kind of seen it probably just floating about. I know it was in our newsletter. I know we talked about it a, a few weeks ago. Uh, but this is an image that challenges us in our personal lives as well as our corporate life as a church. And, and the goal here is to be a perfect uh, equilateral triangle. We want to be up where we love God through prayer, through worship, through study. And, and we want to be in, I don't know where I'm pointing, there we go, in, okay, where we love others and we do life with others. And we want to be out where we're reaching our local community with the gospel of Christ through cultural engagement and just sharing and witnessing and testifying to God's love. Now maybe you're here and, and you're very, very good at prayer and all the upward stuff. And you're very, very great at fellowshipping with other believers and everything, but, but maybe you're just not very good at, at reaching out to different kinds of people. You're really struggling with, with building that, that relationship with people on the outside. Or maybe you're here and you just love everybody and you love being a part of the church and serving in the church and you love witnessing to your friends, but, but your relationship with God is just kind of slacking off a little bit. Or maybe you're here today and you love God with your whole heart and you love people who aren't Christians, but you just dislike the church, okay? I mean, really, I mean, we've all been there, okay? And, and when you look at the life of Jesus, he, he, you see him per, living this perfect equilateral balanced life. 
And if we want to have the same mind, the same heart, the same spirit of Jesus Christ, this is what we got to do, is work on our up and our in and our out. Now, I want to invite the worship team back up here because we're going to respond in worship to the words we just heard. But let me say this. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? I'm totally outside that triangle and you don't even know Jesus. If you have questions, just you just, you just want to chat about the Christian life, I'd be more than happy to chat with you afterwards because living a life with Jesus is a life filled with joy, hope, and peace and adventure. So my challenge to us as a church is this, is to be one of one mind, one, one spirit, one vision, and have the same mind of Jesus Christ where he esteemed others better than themselves and, and better than himself and reached out to everybody in the hopes that they may hear the good news of his love. I want us to be a church that unites around unity so we can better be equipped and empowered to go and spread this good news, this message of God's love to a lost, dying, and broken world. Will you pray with me and stand?